The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we come to the very last section of the book of Revelation. Uh, and just so you know where I'm going to be in my preaching, let me just say one thing. I'm not going to say who, but a godly dad came up and told me last week that his maybe seven or eight-year-old son, as they were getting ready for last week's sermon in Revelation, saw where they were on the page and looked, and, there, and his eyes were like saucers. Dad, are we almost done with church? <laughs> so... No, I don't think we're almost, unless Jesus returns tonight, we're not almost done with church. We're going to go on in preaching. Uh, my plan is to go to 1 Corinthians uh, next. Uh, but we still have two more sermons after this one that I want to do. I want to do something next week on evangelism from verse 17 of this chapter. So I'm not going to do a lot with verse 17 uh, today, which says the spirit and the bride say come. And so we're going to talk about that evangelistic uh, ministry that we are responsible for next week. I'll say some things about that text. And then one more sermon at the end will be an overview of the entire book of Revelation, 22 chapters. So uh, that's coming. And then God willing, we'll turn to, um, to other things. But as we come to this section of Revelation, we come to, you could really look at it as, as Christ's final words to the world, Christ's final inspired words to the church. And there's something very poignant about that, about final words uh, back in 2001, I had the privilege of being at the Southern Baptist Convention, and Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback uh, Church, author of Purpose Driven Life, was there, and he, his church had, had just become a Southern Baptist church, and he was there to preach, and he gave just an unforgettable testimony of him being at, at the side of his father as his father died. I'll never forget it. It was very, very moving. His father, Jimmy, uh, had been a Baptist pastor for many years also a, a missionary, a church planner, a church builder. He was a carpenter and a preacher. Had built with his own hands over 160 churches. But he had cancer, terminal cancer. He's in the final stages. And as Jimmy Warren was dying, Rick was there um, by his bedside. And his, and his dad was in a kind of a hallucinatory, dreamlike state, in and out of consciousness, as sometimes happens at the end of life. And he wasn't thinking about anything. I was just thinking about the churches that he had built. And he was actually calling out construction and, uh, instructions about two-by-fours and things like that. And then he was seized. This dying man was seized with an overpowering desire to get up out of the bed. And he had to be actually restrained, but he wasn't conscious. And he kept saying the same thing over and over. I've got to save one more for Jesus. One more for Jesus. I've got to save one more for Jesus. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. Rick Warren said, he, his father said this without exaggeration over a hundred times. And so Rick knelt by his dying father's bedside and just thanked God for a godly father. And he felt his father's hand reach over like a patriarchal blessing, put his hand on his head. And said, reach one more for Jesus. Reach one more for Jesus. 
Rick said, you know, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. Now, Jesus' final words to the church, it's hard to tell exactly what the last thing he said before he ascended to heaven, but I think probably Acts 1 would be where I would go. It seems like that was it. He had 40 days with his disciples after he died on the cross for our sins and on the third day was raised to life and he appeared over a period of 40 days and gave many convincing proofs to his disciples that he was alive and he brought them to a mountain overlooking Jerusalem and they asked are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel he said it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. So I think it's reasonable to see that as his final words to the church. As I said, next week we're going to zero in on verse 17 and our responsibility to be evangelists here in the Raleigh-Durham area. We're going to talk about that based on that one verse. But today, for one last time, I'm going to just walk through this, a text of Scripture in the book of Revelation. These final words of God to the human race. We're going to take them line by line. We're going to begin uh, at verse 12 and 13. I preached a whole sermon on verse 12 last week. And I'm not going to say much more about that. The fact that Jesus is coming soon and his reward is with him and he will repay each person according to what he's done. And then he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we come to the issue of history. We come to the end of the story. We come to the end of history. We believe as Christians that history is linear. It unfolds. History is the retelling of what has happened in the past. An unfolding of events in space and time. Many people want to make religion a, a pure idea, somewhat like metaphysics. It doesn't affect physical life, science, things like that. It doesn't connect to real life. But we believe as Christians that it absolutely does. And that history really is Christ. It's Christ's story. We believe that history is absolutely vital to our Christian faith. The Bible begins with a historical assertion. I believe this with all my heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that's just a historical fact. And then the Bible unfolds with a history of his dealings with a human race that fell into sin in Adam. And we all sinned in Adam and we, and we died in Adam. And then there's this unfolding story that just goes across the Old Testament. The healing, the, the dealing of God with the, with the Jewish nation. The descendants of Abraham, the bodily descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Jews. You get that history unfolding. But then even more significantly, the history of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, had a, a physical, literal human mother, but he had no human father. And he lived a sinless life. We believe he died an atoning death in our place on the cross. And we believe that he was physically raised from the dead on the third day. That the tomb was literally empty. And, and we believe that that history is vital to our Christian faith. It's not just a, a, 
a metaphysical theory or, or a, a nice story that gives us inspiration. We, we believe it actually happened. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Christianity is nothing. So we believe in history. History really does matter. And we believe that history is linear. First one, then two, then three. Or first A, then B, then C. Alpha, beta, gamma, all the way to the omega day. It's a linear unfolding of a story. Sequence. Eastern religions, Buddhism, Shintoism, Taoism, especially Hinduism, follow a kind of a cyclical view of history. Just going on and on, an endless cycle of birth, death and rebirth, reincarnation, all of those ideas. And I think they get this as they look. There's no evidence that this is true. But they look at nature. They look at the cycles of nature, of the seasons that come. Spring, summer, fall, winter, and then back around to spring again. And it just goes around and around. And we see that. The author to Ecclesiastes says this. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises And the sun also sets and then hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear has its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through 9. And Hinduism specifically zeroes in on human life. You can see it, a a baby, we saw these beautiful babies here. We know what's going to happen. I've got five kids, extended stair step. We're still in parenting. Love it. But we're seeing them and we've seen it. They're so cute and beautiful and then they grow up, they get older and then they move away. And we know what continues. You know, we have a beautiful multi-generational church and I've been here for 20 years. And I've done a lot of funerals. I've seen people age. So we know what happens. You can see that linear view. But then they they look, the Hindus look at at the cycles of nature and they say, well, what must happen is after they die, then they come back and they're reborn, reincarnation. And they believe in this. And there's this karma thing, this endless, you're trapped in this cycle of rebirth, life and death and, and round again. Etc. And you break out by enlightenment. Well, we Christians dispense with all of that. We know it's not true. We believe that it is appointed to each one of us to die once and after that face judgment. So even just die and after that says everything. And even then it's still linear. But this statement here, behold, I'm coming soon. So there's something that's about to happen. It's linear. And I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. We believe it's not just linear, but Jesus is history. He's making one of these I am statements. It's an incredible assertion here. I am the story of the human race. I am history. Just like when he says, I am truth. Not merely I teach truth. I am truth. So we believe that history, linear history, has a purpose. It's moving to a destination. That destination is Christ. And he says he's coming soon, and we know that we have to hear that with the eternality of God. 
compared to the eternity that's coming to all of us, no matter whether you spend that eternity in heaven or hell, eternity is coming. This life that you and I are living right now is a mist. It's a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. After that comes eternity. James Joyce in his portrait of an artist as a young man tries to capture what eternity is like. So what he writes, you have often seen the sand on the seashore. How fine are its tiny grains? And how many of those tiny little grains go into a small handful which a child grasps in its play. Now imagine a mountain of that sand a million miles high, reaching from the earth to the farthest heavens, and a million miles broad, extending to remotest space, and a million miles in thickness. And imagine such an enormous mass of countless particles of sand multiplied as often as there are leaves in the forest, drops of water in the mighty ocean, Feathers on birds, scales on fish, hairs on animals, atoms in the vast expanse of the air. And imagine that at the end of every million years, a little bird came to that mountain and carried away in its beak a single tiny grain of that sand. How many millions upon millions of centuries would pass before that bird had carried away even a quarter foot of that mountain? And how many eons upon eons of ages before it had carried all of it away? And yet at the end of that immense stretch of time, not even one instant of eternity could be said to have ended. At the end of all those billions and trillions of years, eternity would have scarcely begun. It's chilling to read that and think about people spending eternity in hell. Terrifying. And that is the very thing that God sent his son Jesus to deliver us from and bring us over into an eternity of heaven. The very thing we've been reading about in Revelation 21 and 22. Eternity surrounded by glory and beauty and joy. And that's what's at stake. And the second coming of Jesus and all of the wrath and the judgment that we've been reading about in this book of Revelation, together with the rewarding of his saints, the wrath and judgment on his enemies, and the rewarding on his saints, he's coming soon to do that. It's the final act of this linear history that God planned from before the foundation of the world. And Christ is the history. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Christ was the alpha day, the first day of history. Through Christ, God spoke the universe into existence. He's the middle day of history. I believe you could just put the cross at the center of human history. Divides time in the West, Western time, into B.C., A.D. The cross at the center. He's the middle day, and he will be the final day when his second coming ends human history. That's linear history. And I would say, were it not for Jesus' bloodshed on the cross, there wouldn't even been a single day of this history. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, if there wasn't going to be a planned redemption, Jesus' bloodshed on the cross, there wouldn't have been even one more day. It just would have ended right there. And so even people, atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, anyone, even if they don't recognize the atoning work of Jesus, everything they enjoy on earth is blood-bought by Jesus. All of the meals they eat, all of the common grace blessings, all of the beauty of the sunrises and sunsets, the beauty of holding their son or their daughter in their arms. And they don't acknowledge God in any of this, but Jesus paid for that just by allowing the history to continue. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then it says in verse 14 and 15, Christ's cleansing is essential. Without the cleansing that Jesus worked by his blood, we would have no right to enter the city. Look at verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So the washing of the robes represents salvation through Christ's blood, cleansing through the atoning blood of Christ. Sin pollutes us. It defiles us. It makes us dirty in the sight of God. The soiling of the garment is a symbol of a sinful lifestyle, of actual deeds done in violation of our consciences and of God's law. It says in Jude 23, hating even the garment soiled by the flesh. Because of the holiness of God, Habakkuk 1.13 says God's eyes are too pure to even look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. He can't look at us clothed in our filthy, sin-covered garments. The washing then of these polluted robes by the atoning blood of Christ represents our salvation, our cleansing, our justification in the sight of God, our forgiveness of sins through simple faith in Jesus the multitude in Revelation 7 from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 7, 14. They are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Listen to this. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it marvelous to know that you, if you're a Christian, you stand in radiant robes of righteousness that are given you as a gift through faith in Christ. God sees you that way. Not guilty, but holy. Reminds me also of the beautiful statement to, to husbands in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. That's what Jesus did for the church. By dying, he's cleansed her. And by the gift of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, he's washed her and made her righteous and clean. And it says, because of that, because we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, we have, and this is incredible, the right to eat from the tree. We have the right to go through the gates of the New Jerusalem. He has, Jesus has won for us rights and privileges that were not ours. Greek word here refers to authority, like legal right to act in a certain way. We know at the end of Genesis 3, remember when Adam ate from the tree and in him we all sinned? And he and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and a cherubim was put there with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Lest Adam should go back and extend his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Not permitted to go back in the garden and eat. Now that Jesus has died for us, we have the right to eat from the tree of life. We have the right to enter the gates of the city. We have the right of access. As it says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God and access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have an access. We have the right to go into God's presence. And we have the right... 
to be called children of God. Like it says in John 1.12. As many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have the right of adoption to be called actually God's heirs. So we have the right to the tree. I love what it says in Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has, listen to this, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us over into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You are qualified for heaven. That's exciting. It's better than being pre-qualified for a loan. Much better than that. You are qualified to go through the gates and reach out your hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Isn't that incredible? And Jesus paid for that. Now, outside are the unclean. Look again at verse 15. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is a regular theme here at the end. God is very clear who is going to be excluded. We Christians, we're not universalists. We don't believe everybody ends up in heaven. We actually think most do not. Jesus warned, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We believe only a few are going to be saved, but it's still, that's percentage-wise, Numerically, a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. But outside, we're told, are those who are rejected because of their wickedness and sin. We get lists like this, Revelation 21.8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And again, Revelation 21.27. Nothing impure will ever enter it. In the New Jerusalem, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is a similar kind of list. Look at it, verse 15, outside of the dogs. Dogs in those days were not pleasant domesticated animals that are almost like members of the family and are beloved and grieved when they die. They're more, you could imagine, like wild dogs, like junkyard dogs, rabid, prowling around. Like wild boars, wild dogs, that kind of thing. Sometimes the word is uh, uh, referred uh, disparagingly to male prostitutes or anybody who is of repulsive moral makeup. That's what I think the word means here. And then if you go through the rest of the list, those who practice magic arts, pharmacia, the, the drugs, the uh, corruption of black magic, these things, sexually immoral live in such a corrupt age sexually, the perversions and the, and the violation of one man, one woman in covenant relationship for life, people who violate that, murderers, and Jesus said it's not enough to just not have physically murdered somebody. If you've been angry with them in your heart, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And idolaters, anyone who sets a created thing above God and they live for that created thing rather than God who made them, that's idolatry. All of these, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, they're excluded. And we just need to be aware of that. We need to know this. We need to understand these words. We need to warn those who are living this kind of life that they are in great danger. I just said in my Bible for Life class this morning, we need to fear God on behalf of people who don't. Does that make sense? 
We need to fear God for them. And by the grace of the word and the spirit, transfer that fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved, right? We want to fear on their behalf until they fear like they should and cross over from death to life. Now, in verse 16, we see the identity of Jesus. He claimed, I, Jesus, he's speaking here. But he says something mysterious about himself. He identifies himself as a speaker. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. So authors of scripture frequently identify themselves by their own name and and with the word I. John does it twice. I, John, in Revelation 1-9, does it again in Revelation 22-8. I, John, was sent by God to give you this information. But here, Jesus says, you know, it's not John, it's me. I, Jesus, am the real author of this book of Revelation. And I've sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches, plural, so that all of us can listen to this book of Revelation. And he identifies himself mysteriously in verse 16. Look at this. I, Jesus, I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. This is definitely a connection to Isaiah 11 where it talks about Jesse, who's David's father. But... Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the image here is Jesse, really David. David's lineage seems to have been cut off. It's a stump, but it's got an active root system. And up out of this seemingly defunct lineage of King David will come a branch. And from that will bear fruit. And later in Isaiah eleven ten, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the nations. And the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. That's Jesus. But here Jesus claims to be, listen to this, both the root of David and the offspring of David. Both. Effectively, he is both David's creator and his descendant. If that's not mysterious, if that's not enough to make the circuit breaker in your brain just trip over, he is David's creator and he is his descendant. Now, we know that this is only possible by the mystery of the incarnation. This is who Jesus is. Fully God, eternally God, but also at the right moment in the fullness of time became human in the lineage of David. The very first thing the New Testament asserts about Jesus, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's the first thing that the New Testament says about him. So he is the descendant of David, but he's also David's creator. You remember how the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary, came to Mary with the news that she was going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And this is what the angel said to her. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Whoa. Can you imagine being Mary hearing that? The Son of the Most High, the throne of his father, David. Christian theologians spent centuries trying to figure that out. It's called the mystery of the incarnation, but that's who he is. 
And he's called the bright morning star. So if you're ever up right before dawn and you like to look at the stars, sometimes right at the horizon there's a, the morning star. Frequently it's Venus, so it's not even a star. But it's a harbinger of the sunrise that's just about to come. And so the, the morning star is Jesus and his, his incarnational life and then the, the 20 centuries of the advance of the gospel in his name. This is a, a harbinger, a morning star of the glory that's about to come. And after all of this darkness, light is coming. He's the morning star. Now in verse 17, as I said next week, we're going to spend a whole week on this one verse. But let's spend a little time on it now. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So as I said, these are God's final words to the human race. This is Jesus' final words. And he is pleading with thirsty sinners to come to himself and be satisfied with salvation. That's what's going on. And the Holy Spirit is in partnership with the bride, the church. And we together have a role to play. We'll talk all about that, God willing, next week. We have a role to play. The spirit and the bride together have a role to invite thirsty sinners to find salvation in Christ. This makes me think of of three scriptures right away. We'll talk more about them, God willing, next week. But Jesus in John 7, on the last and greatest day of the the feast, he stands up with thousands of Jews around at this this, uh, Jewish festival. And he stands up. And he cries out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So this verse, verse 17, makes me think about that. Jesus is calling on thirsty sinners to come to him and believe in him and find eternal refreshment, find life. Also, it says, let him take the, the, the gift of the water of life freely. That means without any money. We'll talk more about this next week, but this definitely makes me think of Isaiah 55. Where it says, come to me all, or it says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Without money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Isaiah 55. And then Matthew 11 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So I think about those three verses, and if I'm not careful, I'll think about 30 others, so I need to just focus. But sin makes us thirsty. Being spiritually dead and yet still physically alive is a thirsty place to be. And you know you violated God's laws, you violated your conscience, you know that you're on the outside looking in, you're thirsty, the sin is not satisfying you, it only just makes you more thirsty. It's like drinking salt water. And you're on the outside and you need, you need Christ. You need forgiveness. If you're on the outside, I'm saying you're in danger. John 3, 36 says you're under the wrath of God right 
now. If you die in that condition, you will go to hell forever. But he is standing in now inviting you to come and drink, and he will satisfy you forever. That's what this invitation is. And we're told that we should get in on the invitation. We who ourselves have drunk, we should be inviting others. So we'll talk more about that next week. Now in verse 18 and 19, we see that Christ's word is complete. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So like I said, this section, this is the very end of the Bible. This is the last. And God knew very well. I think these words go beyond just the book of Revelation. But God knew that Revelation would be the capstone of written scripture. This is it. This is the, this is the end of the book. The end of what God has to say. The final word. And the purpose of this book, this written book, the purpose of these words... Page after page of scripture, the purpose of all of it, the purpose of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10. So as you look at these words, you read them, I think about the end of the gospel of John where John, the apostle, same one who wrote this book, said Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. No one comes to faith in Christ apart from the ministry of the word of God. You don't think your way to Jesus. You don't reason your way to Jesus. You hear the gospel proclaimed from the scripture. So the Bible is given to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, and then to thoroughly equip us to do every good work. Works of holiness, works of evangelism, works of ministry. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what scripture is given to do. Bring you to faith in Christ and then make you fruitful. And he warns here not to add to his words. That's not just the book of Revelation. That means the whole Bible. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. Very clear. If you add anything to the Bible, God will add to you the plagues that are described in this book. And if you take away anything from the scripture, God will take away your share in the tree of life in the holy city. That's what he says here. It's very clear. The word is perfect. It is everything we need. It's sufficient. You don't need anything else. The sufficiency of scripture to save your soul and give you a fruitful life for the glory of God. It's all here. You don't need anything more. And this warning that he gives here is an ancient warning. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 it says, Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. Now Satan's always trying to do this. He's always trying to mess with the word of God. Like when he comes to Eve and said, did God really say? Just raising a question. Just a topic for discussion. 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? Oh, well, you will not surely die. That's a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. That's actually the truth. That's what cults do. They mix truth and error all together in one big mess. Satan's always trying to do this. So, categorically, who adds to God's word? Well, there are different categories of people. Legalists add to God's word. They add extra commands that are not in the Bible. Think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They had so many Sabbath regulations, I don't think you could keep track of them. They had all of these regulations about the Sabbath and all, and Jesus has cleared it away. Legalists. The Jews, some scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, they knew that the word of God commanded, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yahweh, the name of God. Don't take it in vain. Well, they thought to protect that command by putting extra wall around it. Say, we're not even going to say Yahweh. Wherever the four letters that we pronounce Yahweh uh, come in, you're going to say Adonai instead. So that way we're certain not to ever take the name of the Lord. But God said, this is the name by which I am to be known in every generation. And now we won't even speak the name. Do you see? They added the commands. All of the regulations. Legalistic uh, cults and religions add extra commands. I was raised Roman Catholic. For centuries, the clergy in the Roman Catholic have had to take a vow of celibacy. They're not allowed to be married. They're not allowed to have a godly wife. The river of immorality and wickedness that that interjected into Roman Catholic life is indescribable. And Paul says in Colossians that forbidding of marriage is the doctrine of demons. Actually, 1 Timothy. The Shakers, a cult, they forbade men and women even touching each other. We're at the Smithsonian in the religion section, and there was a picture of a Shaker dance. And there are the women on one side and the men on the other. As I've said about the Shakers before, they better be good at evangelism because they're not having baby dedications. They're not raising up the next generation of shakers. It's a cult. And they're adding these commands. Other cults have added holy books. Like Islam, I think you could, by any definition of a cult, I think Islam meets the criteria. It came after Christianity. It adds and subtracts and multiplies and divides. So that it meets every criteria for a false teaching, a cult. It's just so successful that people call it a world religion. But we know very well what book got added there, the book, the book of Quran, the Quran, and was given by an angel to Muhammad in a cave. Or I think about the Mormons. They added the Book of Mormon and some other books besides. Joseph Smith, uh, an angel came and gave him, do not add to this book. What about those that take away from the commands of this book? Well, I think about... The other side of legalism are licensed people. Oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about sexual immorality commands. Don't worry about these other things. Just live. We're all forgiven. So there were licensed teachers who, t- who changed the grace of God into license for immorality, even back in the, in the New Testament era. Jude 4. They're godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So licensed people, people who can say you do whatever you want. Don't worry about this, don't worry about that, whatever. Just believe in Jesus, that's all. 
or liberals, theological liberals do. Ever heard of Thomas, the Thomas Jefferson Bible? You know what the genius Thomas Jefferson did? He went through, I don't know if he used a red pen, but I picture him using a red pen. No, uh-uh, nope. No, not that either. Oh, that's good. We'll keep that. That's what liberals do. Theological liberals, they pick and choose and get rid of aspects of Holy Scripture. They take away from the things written in the book of God. So what I want to give you just as a pastor, this is why I preach verse by verse, book by book. I want to give you all of the Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a lifetime work to become proficient in the word of God. There's milk and then there's meat. And harmonizing all of these line after line after line, all of these scriptures into a system of truth is hard to do. But that is your lifetime work. Now we finish in verse 20, 21 with this. God's grace, Christ's grace is effective. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. For the last time in this book, Christ warns us that he's coming soon. We are to be constantly vigilant, doing the works that God entrusted us to do. We are to be like the faithful steward in a household who is put in charge of the servants of the household to give them their food at the proper time. And Jesus said about them, it will be good for that servant who finds, whom the master finds him doing so when he returns. We don't know when he's coming. So we need to be vigilant. He's coming soon. We need to be aware that our lives are brief. James 4.14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or Isaiah 50. Isaiah 40 verse 6 through 8. All flesh is grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. And so we, we are knowing our lives are brief. That we're going to die soon. We are to be vigilant and active. Growing in holiness. Sharing the gospel with lost people until God takes us out of this world or he comes back. We, and I love Psalm 130 verse 6. I love this. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. You are to be so expecting Christ and ready. That's how you should live your life. And as we wait and as we work, we have to, we have to say with Jesus, I love this, with John. He says, I'm coming soon. And then John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come. I want him to come. Now, we have a sense he may not come this afternoon. I think all of us who are in Christ would be delighted. But it might be a while. And so we are to work for the glory of God until then. What is going to keep you in Christ between now and the day you die or the day Christ returns? Only this, the grace of God. He says very plainly, the grace of our Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Every epistle ends this way. You are not independent of the vine. You, you are a branch. He's the, he's the vine. And as you abide in Jesus through the ministry of the word and the spirit, you will stay alive in Jesus. That is the grace that's going to keep flowing in your life. And by that grace, you're going to keep walking with him for the rest of your lives. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Applications. Well, come to Christ. If, if you are here today for, for a baby dedication, you're, you're a, a family member, 
we celebrate with you. We are so thrilled. But if, if you know that, that you're on the outside, you don't usually go to church, you're here to support a loved one or some, some family and all that, I just want to say, I yearn that you get more than that out of the day. <laughs> that moment is so brief. The childhood of these infants is so brief. I am offering, Jesus is offering you eternal life. Come to Christ. And then for us who have already come to Christ, our job is to just reach out with the gospel. Come next week. And we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about the responsibility First Baptist has to share the gospel with people here in Raleigh-Durham. We're going to talk specifically about how we want to do that next week. Also, just history. Do you see your life as part of this unfolding story, Alpha and Omega? Do you see yourself in there? Do you feel like your life has a purpose? Or do you feel like it's meaningless? Are you squandering your life on electronic entertainments? That will be wood, hay, and straw on judgment day. And you're just wasting your days. Or are you finding yourself called by God to a, a ministry in which you, you've been gifted to do that ministry? He is the Alpha and the Omega, not just of all of human history, but of you, of your life. Find your life purpose. Find your story within this story that Jesus is telling. Don't waste your life. Don't waste this week. Thirdly, are you ready for the continual, are you continually ready and awake and aware of the imminent return of Christ? It's just a way you live your life. He said four times, I'm coming soon. Are you able to say, amen, come Lord Jesus. I want to be ready at every moment for the second coming of Christ. Fourthly, purify yourself as he is pure. The, the text speaks of washing your robes so that you may have the right to enter the new Jerusalem. Justification does that, but you're also, you need Jesus to wash your feet, right? person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. So you get dirty as you live. You get dirty as you walk. And it says in 1 John, everyone who has this hope of heaven in him purifies himself as he is pure. You need to get ready for heaven. Let me just challenge you. Do you have a taste for the things of God, a taste for Scripture like you used to? Is it greater, the same, or less than it was two years ago? If it's less, I can just about guarantee one thing about you. You're two in the world. You're, you're dining at the world's table, and you have less of a taste for Scripture and for Christ. You have forsaken, or you're in the process of forsaking your first love. Don't do this. Fast from worldly things. Get into God's word. And that's where I'm going to end finally today. Not just a matter of protecting and don't add to, don't take away. Okay, fine. This is it. We're not going to add to it. We're not going to take away. What I want to say is open it up and read it. Feed on it. And don't add to it or take away just even in your own life. Say, God, what do you want me to do? How can I live today? What can I do for your glory and to serve you today? How can I feed on your word to be strong for your glory? That's the call. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the things that we have learned in your word. We thank you for the power of the word. We thank you for the way that you have spoken to us. What a rich day it's been. I just thank you for Wes and brothers and sisters that have teamed with him today to bless us, enabling us to sing by their skillful playing. And Father, I just pray that you would just give us a sense of the glory and the greatness of these themes in the book of Revelation. I pray that we would rely on the grace of God more and more to make it through the dangers that we have in this world. And next week, Lord, as we study evangelism, give us a heart to take risks, to share the gospel with coworkers and 
and people we're going to meet with even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.